Okay, so Don's got a few more handouts back there. Tonight, we're going to, by way of introduction, jump right in. So open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We're going to start with a little study in the text, Ephesians chapter 2. It really be, will be the perfect introduction for our study tonight and its connection to grace as we're studying God's grace and salvation. The title of the study at the top of your page overall is Doctrines of Grace. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor towards sinners. Some have put it, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. What does that grace look like, though? How, how exactly are we saved by grace? What does God's grace do for us? We've been talking about special grace. What makes grace special? There are many answers to these questions, but Ephesians 2 is like the highlight reel. A perfect place to start and see a, an inspired summary of God's grace, his saving grace. So Ephesians 2, look at verse 1. We've seen these verses many a time, but we'll do it one more time. Verse 2, or I'm sorry, verse 1 of Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We've covered these verses many times, really summarizing our sin problem, which was spiritual death, enslavement to sin, Satan, and the world. We were by nature children of wrath. Our sin problem, in a nutshell, we were lost, enslaved, and dead, helpless, under God's wrath, Can't do anything to get out from under his wrath because we're dead and helpless. That sounds like a big problem. What's the solution? Well, as you know, it comes in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You can stop there. It really, in a way, says it all in the first two words there, verse 4. We were dead, lost, enslaved, but God. But God did something, he's going to do something here. It doesn't say, but we. Paul doesn't chime in and say, here's what we've done about our condition. Yeah, we were lost and dead and children of wrath, but we did this. There's nothing for us to do. There's nothing we can do. This is about what God did, but God. Who he is and what he did. Who is God? Well, he's rich in love and mercy. Mercy is his goodwill toward people who, uh, by not giving them what they deserve. What do we deserve? Wrath, children of wrath. But we don't get it. That's mercy. Instead, by his love, we're going to get something we don't deserve. That's grace, by the way, giving someone what they don't deserve. Mercy and grace, really just two sides of the same coin. We receive uh, heavenly riches. And so he continues in verse 5, this expression of God's love, where he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ By grace, you've been saved. He starts verse 5, as if it wasn't enough, another reminder, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He's laying it on heavy that we were just, we were super dead. You were thoroughly dead in your sins. But what did God do for us? Here it says, he made us alive in Christ, with Christ. He brought us to new spiritual life. This is a reference to a spiritual resurrection. God raised the spiritually dead, and he brought them to new life with Christ. 
And this resurrection affected our salvation. This was the starting point of our salvation. And that's why Paul interjects in verse 5 that little parenthesis, for by grace you have been saved. This is what God's grace does for us. It does a whole lot more to be sure, but this is really how it, it starts by God bringing us to new life. Now Paul continues to elaborate on what God's grace gift of salvation does for us in verse 6. He continues, verses 5 and 6 really go together. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. And verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 and 6 go together, and you might be able to identify that the three verbs, they're all aorist, active indicatives. They're just telling us, God, Paul's making the statement of fact, the three actions God did on our behalf in verses 5 and 6. He, number one, made us alive. Number two, raised us up. Number three, seated us. These were the expressions of his saving grace. And notice how all three in this passage correlate to our union with Christ. These all happen in Christ, with Christ. We were made alive with Christ. We were raised up with Christ. And then we were seated with Christ. What God is doing for us here by grace all comes by, by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. He rose to new life first that we might follow thereafter and partake in his resurrection life. So in essence, this is new birth. From death comes life. This is second birth. We were dead. That's our problem. Under wrath. But God saved us in wrath. Made us alive. Raised us up. And seated us with Christ in the heavens. This is salvation by grace. And God did this, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to verses 8 through 10 at the end, but this is, this passage, it encapsulates what God did for us in salvation. This is salvation by grace. This is why we speak of being saved by grace. His grace saves us. It transforms us and raises us from being spiritually dead to being now spiritually alive. It all comes in Christ, by virtue of our union with Christ. And apart from this work, we would never be saved. And this, so this is a sovereign grace, a special grace, the saving grace. It starts with God's grace and election. We already learned that back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 through 6. He predestined, called us, chose us in eternity past. We've studied all that. But then in time, God now makes us alive with Christ. And this new birth is the foundation of our salvation. So in summary, this is why we believe in the doctrines of grace, that salvation by grace is taught in scripture. And this grace is not just a cooperative grace or an enabling grace. It's a sovereign, special, particular saving grace. And we are passive. God acts on us to bring us to himself. Now, so far in this study, we've seen how, especially in the past several weeks, we've seen how the Arminian understanding of God's grace really falls flat. God's grace does not merely enable us to save ourselves. It goes much further than that. And God's grace is not universal. Just think about what we just read in Ephesians 2. If God did that for everybody, everybody would be saved. But no, this is a 
the picture here is of a special, particular, sovereign grace that takes people who are dead and, and did nothing, deserved nothing, offered nothing, and just makes them alive. Because of what? His mercy and love. That's it. It's a, it's a sovereign grace. And this is the Calvinist understanding of grace. And so for the past in about three weeks, we've been seeing how Scripture gives this understanding of God's grace its full support. <coughs> scripture understands a, a common grace given to all, God's general goodness toward everybody, but also understands a special grace, a truly saving grace. And we've been studying that saving grace, and tonight we're going to wrap up this study on this saving grace, what is called irresistible grace, with a study on regeneration. And you'll see from what we just learned in Ephesians 2, we've, we've already been prepared for it. Now, we've, we've said many times, we've organized this study around TULIP, the five points of Calvinism, just as like a general outline. We've covered T, total depravity, U, unconditional election. The L is limited atonement. And now we're in the I for several months, but this is irresistible grace. We'll finish that tonight, actually. And we've made the point that God's grace in salvation, this effectual grace, it's expressed in two ways. The actual form that God's grace takes to save people comes in two ways. One is the effectual call, and the other is regeneration. The effectual call plus regeneration, that's how God, God's grace saves, through, through the effectual call and regeneration. God intervenes to save sinners first by calling them. The call that was last week is this divine summons of the dead to life. God calls them and summons them to come alive. Like we learned in Romans 8.30, this call plays a special part in the order of salvation. Those who were predestined were called. And those who were called were justified, and those who were justified were glorified. You have to be called before you're justified. And we learned last week this is a special, particular, sovereign, effectual summons to life. But there's another side to the, the coin of the effectual call, and that's regeneration, where God, when he issues that call, like, I'm calling you to life, that call comes with power. It's effectual in that it actually changes you and transforms you and brings you to life. And that is regeneration. They really go together. You don't get one without the other. And it's, it's what you might uh, have heard of as Scripture speaks of as the new birth. It's really the same thing as we'll see tonight. So we're going to study now regeneration with the aim of teaching us more about God's grace and salvation, which is what this is all about, the doctrines of grace. We're really we're getting into it. Now, you could, you could spend months studying the miracle of regeneration or the new birth. Tonight, I want to give you, I think, just a good holistic survey, survey the breadth of regeneration to give you that better picture of God's sovereign and saving grace, which we've already tasted in Ephesians 2, but now let's, let's keep going and let's take that further. So let's help you with a little bit of, of a definition in case you don't have it down. The definition of regeneration in your notes, you can follow along now with the, at least the verses we'll get to. We learned before our problem is death, ultimately spiritual death and eternal separation from God, this being children of wrath, that's, that's the problem. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, God's regeneration solves this problem by giving us life, bringing us to life. And fundamentally, 
You can understand regeneration as the sovereign act of God through the Holy Spirit by which he imparts new life to the dead sinner. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's not that complicated. It's the sovereign act of God through the Holy Spirit by which he imparts new life to the dead sinner. Just spiritual resurrection. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It's the new birth. God raises the spiritual dead and he washes them with the water of his word. Makes them new. This is, we're talking rebirth, recreation, resurrection. And scripture expresses this regeneration in many ways. For example, a new heart. As you're made new, you get a new heart. And so, for example, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God promised the time would come when he would circumcise their heart and the heart of their descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. You can't do that. You can't love God with all your heart and soul. You you have a fallen, dead heart. The day will come when he will circumcise the flesh of your heart and make you new. Likewise, he promises in Ezekiel 11, 19, God says of his people, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, a living, breathing, spiritual heart, a new spirit. New heart, new spirit, new mind. Romans 8, 5 through 8 talks about us now having new minds set on the things of the spirit, not of the flesh. We, can now have, we have new minds that can be renewed. 1 Corinthians 2, 16 speaks of us having now the mind of Christ. Our minds have been renewed by this rebirth. We have new eyes. Acts 26, 18, Paul testifies that Jesus came to open the eyes of the Gentiles, that they would turn from darkness to the light and from dominion, the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. 2 Corinthians 4 is a significant passage that I want you to turn to. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4 now. Let's go backwards from Ephesians not too far. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll read 3 through 6. You should remember this passage from when we studied limited ability and and total depravity. But I shall read it again. 2 Corinthians 4. I'll read 3 through 6. Where Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So in this passage, what's, what's interesting is that your heart and your mind and your eyes are all used synonymously, interchangeably. You're just talking about the inner man, your nature. And we were blind in our old nature, but God has opened our eyes, given us new understanding, a new spirit that is not dead but alive and can see things clearly. And as God lifts the veil from our eyes, so to speak, gives us new eyes to see him, with these new eyes, now we can behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
Now, as we see the gospel with unveiled eyes, Christ is not foolish, he's wisdom. We see the glory of God in Christ, and we believe. But how does it begin, though? With new eyes. You have to have new eyes first. You have to have the blindfold lifted. You need a new heart, you need a new mind first, before you can see the gospel and believe. Otherwise, it's veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. But God must first make you alive. That's regeneration. New heart, new spirit, new mind, new eyes. And also new nature. Just putting it all together, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Just turn the page to 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, If anyone is in Christ, verse 17. If you're in Christ, union with Christ, there's that concept again. He says, He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Is a new creature. And likewise, Colossians 3, 9 through 10 speaks of us having put on the new self as, as a fact, as a reality. We are still being renewed, but we have already put on the new self. And that, that comes about by regeneration when we are made new. If you remember back in our previous studies what total depravity signifies, total depravity we are totally depraved. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it does mean that the depravity of, of sin has extended to the totality of our being. We are completely depraved. Every part of our being, our makeup, is depraved. That's, that's what it means by total depravity. So that means our hearts, our minds, our wills, our affections, our desires, every facet of our being is depraved. That's total depravity, as, as we learned. But regeneration really rectifies that. We're given a new mind, a new heart, with new affections, new desires, a new will, a new spirit, new eyes, new ears. Every part that was depraved is brought to life. Every part that was corrupted is washed and purified and made new. And so regeneration is the answer to our sin problem, as, as we've seen and will continue to see. Although we're not perfected by regeneration, that's glorification. That's in the future still. We're not entirely perfected by regeneration, but no part of your being remains unaffected by regeneration. New life begins. It might begin in seedling form, so we'll see later, but you're now alive. You're, new, you're a new creature if you're in Christ. So hopefully that's helping you understand a little bit more the picture of regeneration in Scripture. Next, the necessity of regeneration. We're not going to labor this point. We've done it just too many times. You should know this very well by now. After studying depravity and total inability, because we're spiritually dead, unless God brings us to life first, nothing's going to happen. We have no hope. The dead can't raise themselves. The gospel will be forever veiled to us. We will never turn to Christ and believe. We'll never be saved. So suffice it to say here, we'll just repeat what Jesus said in John 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. Spiritual life is needed to see the kingdom. We'll see that verse later. But understand what Jesus teaches that you don't need modification. You don't need reform. You don't need rehabilitation or rehabilitation. I think I said that right the first time, but you need 
total transformation. You need regeneration. It's not enough to reform your character. You're just you're a little rough around the edges. Let's fix you up a little bit. No, you need totally new birth. That's how you can be accepted by God and see the kingdom and see the kingdom's king. You need a new nature. We'll come back to John 3 later. Let's get into a more important uh, section here for the sake of our notes. The author of regeneration. We've very well established the necessity of regeneration. I think we've established this as well, but let's make crystal clear the author of regeneration. First, regeneration is willed by the Father. It is willed by the Father, God the Father. The triune God is pictured as the sole agent of regeneration. Men, men and women, humans, we are passive agents. We, we don't do anything. We are acted upon. We're like Lazarus. We're just dead, and then we're alive. God is the sole active agent. However, the three different members of the Trinity are seen to have different roles or parts to play in this work of recreation. Much like Father, Son, and Spirit came together but had different roles in creating the universe, so Father, Son, and Spirit have very similar roles in creating new people, new life, new creatures. Starts with God the Father, and as typical, he's seen as the directing agent. Just as he summons dead sinners to life, he also wills that they actually come alive. We already read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where... It talks about how the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. This will be God's doing as he brings you to new life. John 1.13 speaks of us as being the children of God. We used to be children of wrath. Now we're children of God. And we are born. Especially in John's gospel, that, that verb for born is a key term. We are born. We come alive. It says, not of blood. So not your lineage nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are we born into God's kingdom? How are we made alive? Your will has nothing to do with it. It's God's will. It's his will, his doing. We are born not of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. We're born of God. This is exclusively his will and his doing. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, we already studied. We were lost, dead, enslaved. But God, right? He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us. He's active. We're passive. We merely are the recipients of these actions. He's doing it all. We've already covered that one. Colossians 2.13. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our transgressions. Colossians, as always, very parallel to Ephesians, but it, it says it quite succinctly. But he introduces that imagery of the circumcision of your heart again. We were uncircumcised in our heart, in our flesh. We were cut off from God. But even while we were dead, he made you alive with Christ. There you have it. He made you alive. This is God the Father's will and doing. James 1 17 and 18, a passage we'll see in a couple Sundays in the morning. Speaks of God being the source of all good things. All good gifts come from him. And then verse 18 says that in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. That verb for bringing us forth is used earlier in James of childbirth. This is talking about birth. This is new birth. 
And so how did God bring us forth? In the exercise of his will, it says. It says plan is day. In the exercise of God's will, he brought you to new life. This is his will. Yeah, Ed? Does that mean through imputation? No. Imputation of life that, that Jesus provided through... through. You, uh, so he asked, does that correspond to the concept of imputation? I would say directly, no. If you're just talking about imputation as imparting something, then yeah. But I know what you mean. I know what you're thinking. Imputation, uh, theologically, is, is you know, crediting to someone's account. That's really a concept used for justification, which comes after regeneration, after faith. Then we're justified, and that's where imputation theologically plays a part. It's in justification. So we wouldn't really speak of imputation with regeneration. So in other words, yeah, so in other words it, comes, it builds up to and through justification, and then what you're saying continues on. Starts with, well, it's, you know, we have the effectual call, right, order of salvation stuff, the effectual call. You've been predestined, but now you're, you're alive in 2018, and God calls you, the effectual call, with regeneration, those two sides of the same coin. Now you're alive. And it, this all happens in the, in the same moment of time, but logically, the effectual call and regeneration come first. Now you're alive, you have a new eyes, you see Christ unveiled, the glory of God in Christ. You now believe, you repent and believe. That's conversion, that comes next. You repent, you believe. Then you are justified, justification by faith. Faith comes first, before justification. So now you believe, and then God declares you not guilty. He declares you righteous. As you believe... Again, all happening in the same time, but logically, as you believe, God takes your record of sin and imputes it, imputation, to Christ's account. You're now not guilty in God's eyes. You've gone from guilty to not guilty. And secondly, he takes the weight of Christ's righteousness and imputes that to your account. So you've gone from, not guil- you've gone from guilty to not guilty, and then not guilty to perfectly righteous. That's justification by which we are saved. Salvation is a big umbrella term, and it encapsulates all these concepts like regeneration and conversion and justification. But so imputation would, we really talk about that with justification. But they all come together and they all happen in like a moment's time, but log- we're talking the logical order here. Does that help you? Okay. That was a little theological sidebar. Hopefully that, hopefully you were tracking with some of that. Anyway, and then one more verse, 1 Peter 1.3. It says, God, the Father, you know, it says, Blessed be God and uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you want it any more straightforward? That God the Father, according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I don't think I need to comment on that. It's complete causality. We're passive. He caused us to be born again. So first, regeneration is willed by God the Father. Secondly, it is won by God the Son. It is won by God the Son. We alluded to this earlier from Ephesians 2. But our new birth couldn't happen apart from Christ's resurrection. Our spiritual resurrection comes about by virtue of our union with him. In salvation, Christ's death becomes our death. And his new life becomes our new life. And so like we read in Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with him. He raised us up with him. I see people looking around. It's 
the, the second fill in the blank is one. Is one by God the Son. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, conquering sin and death, there would be no just basis for God to impart new life to dead sinners. You also have 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. We also read that. Remember, it begins, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Our regeneration, this becoming a new creature, is tied to being in Christ. You have to be in Christ. And also, we just read 1 Peter 1, 3. Don't forget the end of that verse, where it says, Blessed be God, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see that the connection between our spiritual resurrection and Christ's first fruits resurrection, that his resurrection becomes the, the basis, the foundation, the archetype of our resurrection, our spiritually coming to life. And so regeneration is won by God the Son. Apart from his work, no aspect of salvation would be possible. And then thirdly, regeneration is wrought by God the Spirit. It is wrought. I had to think of a W. But it's, wrought, it's brought about by God the Spirit. If you're an obsessive compulsive note taker, that's R, R, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. I'll help you out a little bit there. It's, it's wrought. It's not the archaic past tense of worked. Like he worked out, he wrought it. Anyway, by God the Spirit. God the Father is the directing agent in our salvation. The Father issues the divine summons to new life, but the Holy Spirit is always depicted as the efficient cause. He's the one who is seen as carrying out the Father's command and then actually breathing new life into your soul, into your heart, your spirit. He brings you to life. So Jesus says in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The Spirit gives life. These verses are all in your notes, by the way. I'm, just, I'm going fast. But 1 Corinthians 6.11 mentions how we were cut off from God and his kingdom. But then it says you were washed. That's a, a verb we'll see later that ties into regeneration. It says you were washed in the name of Christ and in the spirit of our God. This washing of regeneration comes about by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, the passage we, uh, or a little bit before the passage we looked at earlier, it says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Old Covenant, the letter of the law, kills it. That, that can't, you can't be saved by trying to keep the law because you're dead. You can't please God. But the Spirit gives life. And, and that's a tie into the New Covenant, like we read in Ezekiel, that through this New Covenant, God would actually make people alive on a covenant basis. And that comes by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. Two big passages here. And I think we'll have time for them. Turn to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. Two important passages for seeing the Spirit's work in regeneration. It's very similar to Ephesians. He says, I'll start reading Titus 3, 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, 
not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By, here it is, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we'd be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And he continues. But you see in verse 3, our old self, there it is again, dead, lost, enslaved to various lusts. Verse 4, God's kindness and love for mankind appears. And so verse 5, he saved us. By what means, by what instrument did God save us? Well, not by works, right? He says not on the basis of deeds, but according to his mercy. And more specifically, he says by the washing of regeneration. That word is really correlated to metamorphosis. You think of a caterpillar to a butterfly. That's regeneration, new life. By the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, two terms really synonymous it comes about, he's, he's saving us by this imparting of new life. And the Spirit is the one who washes us, cleanses us. Again, the Spirit we think of as the breath of God, in a sense, breathes life into us. And then verse 6 and 7, you see the connection to Christ and God's grace. Just Titus 3, we don't have time to any more time for it, but this passage really uh, is like Ephesians 2. It's just a wonderful summary of before Christ, after Christ, and, and what God's grace does for us here through the Spirit brings us to life. Now, we have to save some time and turn to John 3. This is the big passage that, that says a lot. And again, I wish we had much more time for it. John 3, turn there. You know, a while ago, I think we watched some Steve Lawson DVDs where he did many, many sessions just on John 3. Several sermons and, and uh, messages Purely unpacking God's, the doctrines of grace from John 3. We'll just look at John 3, 1 through 8 right now and make a few points in connection to regeneration. John 3, you remember Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, shows up to Jesus. Verse 2 says, We know you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again literally means born from above. This is a divine birth. And Christ lays it down. There's so much teaching in here, but let's be brief. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He has no understanding. He should know better, as Jesus will say later, but he thinks that Christ is being purely literal. But Christ says, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say it to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it's come from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Christ is teaching on the new birth here. And this is what has to happen. You, You can't see the kingdom or enter the kingdom unless you're born again, which is to say you're born of the Spirit. Now many ask about the water and the Spirit. It has nothing to do with baptism. I'm just going to give you the short answer. This is a reference to the new covenant promises of God. 
where in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, God said exactly what he was going to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'll read for you, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where God promises that day that would come in connection with the Messiah and a new covenant. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is God saying the day would come when he would replace the old covenant, which can't save, with the new covenant, which will save. And it will save by making you new, a new creature. The water merely pictures purification, the cleansing. You are dead, and as you raise to life, you are cleansed and made alive. These are two aspects of regeneration. And so the water and the spirit signifies, like we read in Titus 3.7, the washing, or Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You're cleansed and purified, you're made alive, you're a new creature. And that's what Christ is saying. You have to be, this has to happen to you. To enter the kingdom, this has to happen to you. But observe here, this is a sovereign work. You can't do that. Can you do this to yourself? There's a whole point in Christ using birth imagery. Can you give birth to yourself? No, this is the Spirit's work. This is a sovereign birth from above. He likens the Spirit to the wind. The Spirit blows where He wills. You can't will this to happen to yourself. The Spirit has to will to do this to you, to breathe you to life. You can't control the Spirit. The wind is not at your beck and call. You can't see when it happens either, but you can see the effects. Just like we can't see the wind, but I can see the effects of the wind. The tree is moving. I know the wind has been here. So when someone comes alive, they're going to be different. They're going to live quite differently. But Christ's point, though, is this is a sovereign birth. Again, the whole analogy of birth shows this is a sovereign work of God. What, what role did you play in your first birth? You played no role. You were passive. It happened to you. You had no say in the matter. It simply happened to you, and well, here you are. Now you're alive. And accordingly, when it comes to the second birth, it, it's the same thing. It's up to God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And specifically here, he points to the Spirit's will in making you born of the water and the spirit. The child makes no contribution to his birth, and likewise, dead sinners make no contribution to their regeneration. Is this the definition of monergism? Remember that word from our very first study, that, that God alone is the, the active agent in our salvation. We're not cooperating here. We're not contributing. We're not earning. We're just receiving. That's salvation by grace. That's why we speak of it as being by grace. And we've seen here the, the author of salvation is the same as the author of regeneration. It's God, Father, Son, and Spirit, each playing a role in making us alive. And we're, we're just passive. Now, we've got we to keep going here for the sake of time and try and plow through a few more of these points. I'll briefly mention the means of regeneration. The means of regeneration. It's not baptism. We can't go down this rabbit trail, but Roman Catholics believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, which means by the magisterium of the church, 
You're not actually made alive until you are baptized in the Catholic Church. I'll just say that's false. It's never taught in Scripture. That's part of the Catholic tradition. Read Romans 6. You'll find that baptism is a picture of regeneration. Our spiritual resurrection is pictured by the ordinance of baptism. But that's only for those who've already been brought to new life and faith in Christ. Baptism is, the ordinance of baptism is meant for those who've already been born again and have come to faith in Christ to signify that new birth. But God does not use the actual ordinance of dunking someone or sprinkling some water on them. That's not the instrumental cause of your new birth. It's not taught in scripture. What is the instrumental cause of your new birth? Well, the answer here is the word of God, the gospel. That's the instrumental cause of the new birth, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. God uses the gospel preached to open the eyes of the blind. And this goes back to our study a couple lessons ago on the external call. Remember the, the external call, the general call? This call goes to all people. It doesn't save by itself, and this is just the gospel. The preaching of the gospel, it's the general call to salvation that goes to all people. But as we learn, the general call, just the preaching of the gospel by itself, it's necessary but not sufficient. That doesn't actually save someone. If you go out in the corner and preach the gospel to a thousand people, a thousand people likely won't get saved. That's not enough. It's necessary that God has so tied his saving work to the gospel, but it's not enough. We also found that the external call, the preaching of the gospel, must be accompanied by the Spirit's working in a special call, an effectual call, otherwise no one will be saved. And so this is how we, where we see that the effectual call and regeneration go together. So here's how it works. The general call goes out. You're on the corner. You're preaching the gospel to a crowd of people. The general call goes out. You're, you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all these people, they all have veils over their eyes. They can't see Christ. They can't understand what you're saying. It makes no sense. It's foolishness to them. But in God's timing and his will, he might issue in the same time as that general call is going out. Per his will, as the spirit moves, he might issue a special call to maybe one person in that crowd. And that special call will lift the veil from their eyes. It will bring them to new life in, in it. In the, the blink of an eye, so to speak, they just come alive. They're, they're now resurrected, spiritually resurrected. And as the veil is lifted from their eyes, and they now hear that gospel preached, they now see the Christ you're preaching like, wow, that, that makes perfect sense. I am convicted by my sin. I need Christ to save me. I need a Savior, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to cast my whole life on him to be saved. That's how it works. This effectual call is, is regeneration. They go together, and this is how God summons people to life. But the instrumental cause is the preaching of the gospel. So James 1.18 says, By the exercise of God's will, remember that verse, He brought us forth by the word of truth. God made us alive by the word of truth. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.14, we've been called... Through the gospel. We're called through the gospel. Or 1 Peter 1, 23. It says, You've been born again, not of seed, 
which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. In verse 25, he says, this is the word that was preached to you. So you're born again through the word of God, and notably the word preached. So the means of regeneration that God uses is the preaching of the gospel. This is why we must preach the gospel. We don't have the power to regenerate. We're not the spirit, but we know that God has so chosen to use the gospel to bring people to life. Therefore, we're going to preach the gospel and simply be faithful to preach the gospel and trust that God will will work as he wills to make people alive. And so we can do that with, with confidence, trusting his sovereignty, and the desire just to be faithful. And that's what we must do. Well, in, in lightning speed, we'll talk about the results of regeneration to finish up here, because I don't want to make this a two-parter. So let's lastly talk about the results of regeneration. This could be its own separate study, as, as regeneration is the beginning point of your Christian life. You could say the whole Christian life is the result of regeneration. But Scripture seems to consistently make a few specific connections to the result of regeneration. The first being faith. Now, I'll take a little time here. This is a little controversial. Does faith come before regeneration or after regeneration? So in other words, you have a dead sinner. Do they first come to have faith in Jesus and then God makes them alive? Or does God take the dead sinner and make them alive first? Then they have faith. Well, Arminians obviously believe in the former. They believe, no, you're dead, or the, you know, you're, but you're not dead because of prevenient grace, and then you have to believe, then you're made alive, and, and the whole nine yards. And Calvinists reject that notion because, as we, we've learned, the spiritually dead sinner is unable to believe. Apart from God doing something, you can't believe. However, you might be curious to know that there are some Calvinists who still believe that faith comes before regeneration. That before you're spiritually resurrected, you have to believe. Many Calvinists hold this position. How can that be? God still has to, if you're spiritually dead and you can't believe, you're unable to believe until you're alive, how can you have faith before regeneration? This is where they rely on the effectual call. And they pretty much define their effectual call as as regeneration without saying as much. And so in other words, God must open your eyes a little bit. God must open your eyes enough to see the gospel and believe. And then after you believe, then you're truly spiritually resurrected and born again. I respect and appreciate such Calvinists who believe this. You know, I think they're a little misguided and a little confused on the issue. The confusion is rectified when you simply understand that in Scripture, the effectual call and regeneration are pretty much the same thing. The two sides of the same coin. That's what God is doing in the effectual call. He is regenerating sinners. It's true. God must sovereignly do something to the dead to enable them to believe the gospel. But there's no halfway resurrection. There's no concept where God takes dead sinners and just like holds their eyes open so that they can believe the gospel. And then after they believe, makes them fully alive. No, it's, it's really simple in the sense that if you understand regeneration to be the other side of the effectual call, it all makes perfect sense. And the simplest answer is the best. 
that God first, in the effectual call, goes the distance and sovereignly brings you to life, then with new eyes, then you believe. And so we would hold that regeneration precedes faith. Rod? What you said last time about John 11 and Lazarus four days dead, yeah. he was really dead. So there was just nothing until Jesus called him by name. Then he was alive. So that's what you're saying. Yeah, Jesus called him by name, made him alive, and only after coming alive could he respond to the call and wa- obey the call, which is to walk forth or for us to believe. So yeah, same thing, exact same thing. You can read these verses on your own. For the sake of time, I'll just make one observation from 2 Corinthians 4 again, that passage we spoke of. It described regeneration as the opening of blind eyes, where faith in Christ is the result of newfound spiritual vision. And it's a great illustration Paul uses where vision and sight are simultaneous. You know, the opening of your eyes and, and seeing light happens at the same time, right? Close your eyes and you open them. And it's simultaneous. The opening of your eyes and, and seeing light are simultaneous. You open your eyes and it's just, that's right there. It's simultaneous. But one of them has to happen before the other. Even though it feels simultaneous to us, you open your eyes and then you see the light. That logically, one of them must take place first. And that is what? The opening of your eyes. It has to happen before you see the light. Even if they feel super simultaneous, You've got to open your eyes first. And that's the point Paul is making there, that God first opens the eyes of the blind. That's regeneration. That they can see the light of the gospel in Christ and believe. So regeneration, the opening of eyes, takes place first. And 1 John 5, 1 makes it clear when it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes in Jesus is born of God. That phrase, born of God, it's the same term, Jesus used in John 3, 7 of being born again, born from above. And the verb tense that that John uses here indicates that believing in Jesus is the result of the new birth. Who is the one who is seen to be born of God? It's the one who believes. The the belief is the, the consequence of being born of God. It's the fruit. It's really the first fruit of the new birth. Faith. And that's the point we're making here. That faith is a result of regeneration makes sense when you realize that in Scripture, even faith is described, of, uh, described as a gift. Did you know that? I know many of you know that, but even repentance and faith, which are themselves two sides of the same coin, they're both described in Scripture as gifts, that God grants repentance, and he gives the gift of faith. Again, for, for time's sake, you can read all those verses on your own. I might highlight Philippians 1.29 where it says, To you it has been granted to believe in Christ Jesus. And that word for granted is the word charizomai. It means grace gift. To you it has been grace gifted to believe. Even your belief in Christ is a grace gift. The same goes for repentance. You read those verses on your own and they'll be clear to you. We'll mention next another result of regeneration is sanctification. We're just holy living bearing fruit, living a new life. When God regenerates a dead sinner, we said before, you know, you're new, you're born again, but you're not perfect. You're not perfect on day one of new life, are you? That's glorification. That happens later after we die and we have a physical resurrection in Christ. 
then we'll be glorified. But regeneration, you're new but not perfect. At the same time, all who are new, all who are born again, they're going to start to grow. Like any child who's born alive, by definition, that child will grow. Why will it grow? Because it's alive. That's what living things do. They grow. Isn't that a sign of all life? They grow. And dead things don't grow. And so the the sign, the fruit, the result of your new birth is going to be growth. And we might call that sanctification, progressive sanctification, becoming more like Christ. You may stumble, but if you're really alive, overall, you're going to grow. And that's sanctification. Divine life is implanted in the believer in seed form. But over time, that seed is going to grow and mature as it feeds on the word of God. It's going to get stronger and bigger and eventually bear fruit. That's how you you bear fruit. Only those who are alive can bear fruit. God is pleased by this bearing of fruit. And that really gives evidence you're alive. The person who bears no fruit and isn't growing, well, most likely they're dead. They're still dead in their trespasses and sins. But holy living... The desire to live rightly and then living rightly is a result of regeneration. It's Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved apart from works. But once saved, God wants you to bear fruit, bear good works. Matthew 7, bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree bears good fruit. That's just how it is. It's a nature, it's a nature issue. You were a bad tree... God wants fruit. How he gets it? He makes you a good tree. Regeneration. And then, over time, you're going to bear fruit by definition because you're alive. You're a good tree. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, those passages in your notes are key. You know those, the put off, put on verses? The the fundamental points of those passages is, you know, you know you're new, right? You know you're alive, right? You guys understand that? You used to be dead, but now you're alive. You already have put on the new self. You're not you anymore. The old self has passed away. You're a new creature. So live like it. That's Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. That's the whole point. Be who you are. Live according to your new nature. And fight the flesh. And live according to your new self. Those, those verses. And it's really a consequence of regeneration. And then 1 John 2.29. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. There's that birth imagery again. Who is born again? How do, we, how do we tell who's born again? The one who practices righteousness. Practicing righteousness doesn't make you born again. No, that's God's sovereign act. But once you are, you're going to practice righteousness. That's how you know. And that's what we are to do. Then lastly, love. As one more result of regeneration is love. Love is, is the chief fruit of sanctification... But scripture always sets it apart as a special fruit. The, the ultimate fruit. Love for God. Love for God's people. Love for God's ways. You delight in God and his people and his ways. That's really at the top of the tree. The chief fruit is that type of love. First John 4, 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he throws it down. If, if you don't truly love God and others and love his ways and love righteousness, you've never been born of God. 
are born again. That's going to have to do it for our time tonight. Believe it or not, there's plenty more you could study when it comes to regeneration. But this is going to suffice. And I hope tonight and our past lessons just give you a better understanding and appreciation of what it means to be saved by grace. It's what, it's what these studies all fall under, being saved by grace. We speak of it all the time. We sing of it. But I hope you truly recognize that we, we owe all of our salvation to God. What do you have that you didn't receive? There's no boasting. We, we received it all. And so we believe in the doctrines of grace. Because scripture overwhelmingly teaches that our sol- salvation is a sovereign gift of God's grace. He predestined. God predestined. God called. God regenerated. God justified. God will glorify. We just receive, 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 receive. And even our faith and repentance were granted to us via new birth. We just receive. This is why we will give God all the thanks, all the glory, why we delight to walk in his ways, to him be the glory for this. So let's be sure to thank God for his gracious work of regeneration, where it all starts for us, in our experience, his work of regeneration. Let's praise him for this sovereign grace. Let's do that now and let's pray. Lord, there's, there's been a lot tonight, but we're, we're thankful for your word. Sometimes it's good to drink from the fire hose and just soak it all in, as much as we can take. Your word, though, is overwhelmingly clear of, of how you save. And it's, it's just you. You save. You saved us. We were lost and dead and enslaved, but, but by your mercy, by your love, through grace, you saved us, Lord. You did it through Christ, who won the victory, paid for our sins, but Lord, you then knit us to him by which our sins are gone and new life comes. You raised us from the dead like him, Lord. We thank you for this. We, we praise you. I pray we, we feel the weight of it, of how we were lost, but now we're found. We sing Amazing Grace, and I pray we, we really reckon with it tonight and now live in light of it, that we've been made new. May we now, Lord, bear that fruit and love one another to walk in your ways and bear the fruit of righteousness as those who've been made new and and who live like it. And above all, Lord, may we just give you the thanks and the praise that you are due for the miracle of salvation. Keep us faithful and and urge us on, Lord, to evangelize. We have to issue forth the call of the gospel. We do that with confidence, knowing as you will, you will bring people to life. Our job is easy. It's just to be faithful. So in all things, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us in your will until Christ comes and we are glorified. And may we pursue you and bear fruit of new birth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.